Today is Thursday, August 12th, 2021. Welcome to the 320th episode of COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Jacob Steer-Williams. I'm a historian of public health at the College of Charleston in Charleston, South Carolina. This week, I will be the guest host of COVID Calls, while the program's founder, Scott Knowles, takes a much-needed break. My focus in the history of public health is on the field of epidemiology, a science unfolding in real time during the COVID-19 pandemic. This week on COVID Calls, I'll be speaking with some incredible scholars who in some way work in the field of epidemiology. If you missed yesterday's episode, I had a terrific conversation about framing the end of epidemics, epidemic activism, HIV AIDS and polio with Dr. Mandisa Mumbali and Dr. Dora Varga. And today I'll be chatting with Dr. Lakshmi Krishnan and Dr. Lorenzo Cerviche. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID calls live on weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. To find the program, go to COVID Calls YouTube, YouTube channel. You can also hear COVID calls anytime recorded as a podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at COVID calls for myself at Steer Williams or Scott at US of Disaster. Please help us spread the word about COVID calls and feel free to send suggestions for guests and future topics to myself or Scott. As of today, August 12th, 2021, there have been 4,328,645 deaths from COVID-19 worldwide, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. Let me put that number in some perspective. It's absolutely sobering for me to think that in the past 24 hours since I spoke with Mandisa and Dora, 10,587 people have died of COVID-19. In the four days that I've been the guest host of COVID calls, 29,629 people have died of COVID-19 worldwide. These daily death counts this week have reminded me that we're living amidst an incredibly tragic natural disaster. Around me every day in Charleston where I live, I hear people talk about being back to normal. That's a word that I hear almost daily. My own university is starting the fall term next week without mask mandates, vaccine requirements, or any semblance of COVID-19 precautions. This is happening when 29,000 629 people have died in four days, and area hospitals are flooded with COVID-19 patients. As a healthy person with a healthy family, my heart goes out to all of those that have lost this immense amount of life. It pains me to think about these numbers and to reflect on them. It jars any rational thought other than the reality that we're living through a catastrophic disaster. But these numbers are not just numbers. They're life's lost. Their parents, partners, neighbors, co-workers, friends, and children. As a way to humanize these numbers, each day this week I'll read a real-life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some ways. That's something that Scott Knowles has been doing from the outset of COVID calls, and it's a powerful reminder of the ways that pandemics strike populations, but we experience them as individuals locally in our communities. My story today comes from reporter Abby Peterson of KETV in Omaha, Nebraska, from August 10th, 2021, two days ago, with the headline, That's Really Hard to See, COVID-19 Nurse at Nebraska Medicine Describes Treating Patients with Virus. A COVID-19 nurse at Nebraska Medicine wishes you could see what she does while treating these patients, since numbers don't always tell the story. She said that this summer, there were three patients hospitalized with the virus. Now they're full and have been operating overflow units. She said they knew the Delta variant was coming, but didn't realize how fast things would take a turn. In general, you know, our environment as a floor is kind of like, all right, let's do it again, Nurse Haley Size said. Size said she and her fellow nurses are trying to stay positive to get through it again. You can really give in to that negative negativity. Or, you know, you can come in, look forward to seeing your colleagues, and know that you're going to help others. Know that they'll do the same for you, Sai said. She said the best thing she can do after a day in the COVID-19 unit is listen to a comedy podcast and play with her dogs and try to get the things she's seen off her mind. 
We sit with families as their family members are not doing well. We watch people feel like they can't breathe at all. We watch people really struggle to go downhill. And that's hard to see, Size says. Size wishes the public could see things through her eyes. There's a lot of there's a lot of statistics out there, she says. And I think sometimes that kind of robs the public of really understanding how traumatizing it is for staff, for family members, for patients, Size said. She worries that we'll see this fall and that it will be worse than last year unless people mask up and get the shot. I hope that people are motivated to get vaccinated. And that is so, so, so important because the difference is real, Size says. She said that most of the patients they have right now are unvaccinated. And there's a clear difference in the condition they're in when compared to those who are vaccinated. Thanks for hearing that story. My guest today, who I'm so excited to talk uh, with today. First, let me introduce Dr. Lakshmi Krishnan. She's a physician, a medical humanities scholar, and a cultural historian of medicine at Georgetown. She's the founding faculty director of the Medical Humanities Initiative. Her current research and forthcoming book, The Doctor and the Detective, A Cultural History of Diagnosis, is contracted for publication with Johns Hopkins University Press. I can't wait to read it. It focuses on the histories of diagnosis and clinical reasoning with broader revel- re- relevance for physicians' professional identity formation, medical epistemology, and diagnostic bias and health equity. And let me tell you, Lakshmi sent me the humblest biography of anyone that I've ever seen. And so let me just fawn on her a little bit more than she probably wanted me to. Uh, She not only was Lakshmi a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University, where she got a DPhil in 19th century English literature, she then got an MD at Johns Hopkins and interned at Duke. Her work has appeared in The Lancet, The Annals of Internal Medicine, Literature and Medicine, Modern Languages Review, Victorian Literature and Culture, and Victorian Poetry. It's so good to have you here, Lakshmi. My second guest is Dr. Lorenzo Cerviche. He's an associate professor of literature and medicine at Lehigh University. He holds a dual appointment in the English department and the health, medicine, and society program. Lorenzo is the author of the newly published and incredibly exciting book that I just finished reading, Medicine is War, The Martial Metaphor in Victorian Literature and Culture published this year by SUNY Press. His work has appeared in the Journal of Medical Humanities, Critical Survey, Science Fiction Studies, Literature and Medicine, and Games and Culture. Lorenzo also serves on the editorial board of the Journal of Medical Humanities. Thank you so much for joining me today. And let me, um, by way of introducing you a little bit more and bringing you into this call and discussion, tell us where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation is there. Lakshmi, why don't we start with you? Thanks so much, Jacob. That was an incredibly generous introduction. I'm so psyched to be here with two incredible thinkers um, and and colleagues and friends. So anyway, all all of that aside, I am calling in from Washington, D.C., where cases are rising, um, as they are obviously across the country and and across the globe. Um, I think we're at an average of something like 130 to 150 cases per day, which is obviously significantly up from the nadir, the beautiful nadir in late May and June. Um, And what we're seeing in D.C. is the hospitalization and the death rate um, predictably are lagging behind. But as we also know, they catch up and things can change very, very rapidly. In terms of our vaccine situation, about 60% of the adult population in the district over 18 is fully vaccinated. We do have an indoor mask mandate, irrespective of vaccine status. So when I walk around the city, I do see most folks wearing them at least inside. Um, I will just mention in terms of health system capacity at Georgetown Hospital, where I practice, and probably on average across the city, our ICU beds are about 80% occupied. And of course, there's all of the non-COVID infectious and non-infectious, non-communicable conditions that are continuing to tick along, often in this syndemic conjunction. So there's not a lot of give in our system, even though comparatively, uh, compared to the rest of the country, I think we're doing all right. Yeah, that's super interesting. And, you know, a couple of things just just to reflect on that, that it makes me think about is like, you know, in, in, in where you're calling from in D.C., 60 percent vaccinated is one of the highest numbers anywhere in the country um, compared to half of that rate 
of some of the southern states right now that are still in the 30 percent. Um, and the other thing that, that you mentioned is something I talked with um, Mandisa Mbali in South Africa, who called from South Africa, where she lives and works um, at the University of Cape Town yesterday. And she said what's so interesting about her reflection of the situation in South Africa is how rates of, of HIV AIDS are so high and continue to be so high and entrenched and, and surpass in some ways numbers of, of COVID deaths in the last um, the last 18 months. And so what, what you mentioned there is so fascinating to me, and it's worth really reflecting on for all of us is, yes, we're dealing with this real everyday natural disaster of COVID, but we're also dealing with all of the other health problems that our systems normally face, right? And, and some of which are being compounded by COVID and long COVID and, and, and even some forces that we don't quite understand. So that's an interesting observation to, to start us off thinking about this. Lorenzo, let's bring you in here. Where are you calling from and, and what's the situation like um, where you live? Uh, first, let me uh, thank you so much for having uh, having me. I'm really, really excited to be here with both of you. Thank you for likewise that generous introduction and that really, um, really sobering um, uh, anecdote that you began with. I'm calling from Easton, Pennsylvania. Right now, our state, I, could, uh, I can say, is doing less bad than some others. Um, I think we're, as of yesterday or today, we're at uh, 13, at an incidence of 13 per 100,000, um, where I think the U.S. is at 37. My county, however, um, Northampton County, is not doing as well as the rest of the state. It's at 20 uh, cases per 100,000. Um, and a lot of that uh, has to do with it being on the border of New Jersey, and um, a lot of other uh, demographic factors. Um, I can say uh, vaccination-wise, we are doing okay. We could be doing better. Anecdotally, um, the return to masking, I think, has been marked with, with hesitance. Um, uh, I, I am fortunate to be working at an institution that has mandated uh, vaccinations and masking indoors as we begin classes in two weeks. So I'm very grateful for that um, with a wife and a nine-year-old unvaccinated daughter at home. So um, I think I'm calling it a place where things are, are going to get worse for a little while, um, but it is definitely worse in other places. Yeah, that's um, – I've been thinking about that a lot, not not just in the last few days, but 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 especially in the last few weeks. I felt like, at least for me and for a lot of people around, around me in, in my circles and my networks, um, and even even broader networks that at some point in Lakshmi, you mentioned this already, that there was this moment in like maybe May or June of this year where where a lot of people had been vaccinated. People were feeling pretty good. Rates were were declining, even though any sensible person could have looked to Europe to see that that Delta was was bad. Right. Um, but there was this sentiment, at least by a lot of people in the U.S. that were vaccinated and and that it was going quite well. And I think now we're we're at this moment and you know pandemics do this and natural disasters they do this. They don't they don't stay stable. They have a a a chronology of their own and a geography of their own. And I think you know we're all of a sudden now sitting in this moment right before school age children are about to go back and universities are about to begin. And and I think so many of us are just sitting here with this anticipation and this fear about what is to come. And, 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 you know, you mentioned this, Lorenzo, that, you know, I think things are going to get, I anticipate things are going to get worse. And, and I think, you know, if you look at some of the, the epidemiological modeling that I've seen in the last week, um, all signs point in the U.S. to things getting worse. And, and that's, it's really hard, I think. It's hard for us as scholars of public health and people who study public health to see that writing on the wall and then to prepare ourselves for it. I think it's probably something rather different for you too, Lakshmi, as, a, as somebody who's a clinician, as somebody who practices medicine, to be able to see through what we might be looking towards in the next month or two months or three months and, and be able to actually prepare for it, either mentally or psychologically or, or in our own communities, in our own lives. Either of you want to just mention that? I mean, any have any thoughts on that? I, I'll just say, <laughs> to be blunt, yeah, I feel this sense of just sinking existential despair. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I never put away my masks. You know, I was reading there were there there's been some really great, obviously wonderful investigative journalism around the pandemic, and there was a piece in the Atlantic quite recently about sort of dusting off the mask. And 
And I just, uh, partly I think having a historical consciousness, partly being a clinician, partly just being a maybe naturally cautious person. But I, that, as you said, that choreography was so familiar and um, we, we, we've heard the rumbles across the globe. Um, and so, yeah, I, I relate to everything you, you just said, Jacob, and I feel so badly for friends, loved ones, colleagues who are experiencing a very different situation from say me and Lorenzo, right? My institution as well has a vaccine mandate. And that's, um, you know, that's, that's reassuring. And even with that, I'm thinking about like, am I going to mask in the classroom and how am I going to distance and keep my students safe and myself safe? So, so yeah, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, you know, um, Christos Linteris, who's a medical anthropologist and a, and a really good friend of mine and just an incredible scholar. He's been on COVID calls once or twice um, with Scott uh, last year. He wrote a piece recently on, on masks that I, that I, that I, that I, I want to tell everyone to go and read. And what Christos basically said is like masks are, are, are now at this stage in the pandemic are like a symbol of our humanity. Like essentially like wearing a mask right now in public tells people in your community, especially if you're a vaccinated person that's wearing a mask, that you care about other people, that you care about the social bonds that tie us together in a civil society. And I think like, that's really powerful, how the mask can at once be a critical epidemiological tool that individuals can use to stop the spread and mitigate the spread of this infectious viral disease. But it's much more powerful than that. It is a symbol. And, you know, the, both of you work in, in the medical humanities and the health humanities, right? And like, and, and here we are sitting in, the, in, in, in maybe the middle of this natural disaster, maybe not even in the middle of it. Maybe we even even reached the middle of COVID-19 yet. And, and, and here is this very simple object, this technology that is l so loaded. It's 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 become divisive. It has become a rallying cry for people with varying ideologies. And at its base level, as this material object, it's a really simple, straightforward thing that we can we can do to help help end end this natural disaster. Maybe not solve it, but help to end with all the other tools that we have. And yet we can't. In, in this country, at least, find a way to make this object just this object. That, that is so incredibly fascinating to me as a scholar. And it's also something that is so hard for me to deal with as an everyday person in a community that is not very masked. Walking into my office today to, to do the show with y'all, like I was the only person that I saw around being masked. And, and that's, that's my reality. And, and I am at a point now, and I know a lot of people in this country are as we start this, you know, the new school year, where this is going to become the most divisive object in our country. And I'm really worried about that. I'm worried about my kids sending my kids into a public school that doesn't have mass requirements, and they'll be masked up. I'm afraid they're going to get bullied. I'm afraid they'll be targeted, because we, we are in this dis divisive moment in this pandemic over very simple public health technologies. Lorenzo, you, you mentioned you have a, a nine-year-old daughter. Um, do you have any just thoughts on, on masks, on the representation of masks, the meaning of masks? Have you thought about that at all and related it to some of your work? Uh, thanks, Jacob. Yeah, I've actually, I've been thinking about that a lot. Um, I think I, I teach a, uh, a unit in my medical humanities class uh, that's essentially object lessons on medical technologies. and I try to encourage papers on things that we don't think of technologies as such, like a mask, because of their quotidian nature, or they don't seem overly technical and complex. Um, but what's what's so, uh, on the one hand, as you say, as a scholar, really fascinating, extraordinary, is um, the way they serve this technical and epidemiological function, but also have this semiotic function that is often at odds uh, with what they are meant to do. Um, from a personal perspective, it's it's really interesting because of I, I've been training for for weeks to do this obstacle course race that I was going to do on uh, two races on Saturday and Sunday, and I've been training to do it masked, um, and it was you know at once the safest way I thought I could do it, but I also wanted to do it 
in a kind of semiotic capacity um, to kind of just show the, the the solidarity for being safe and protecting oneself with others. Um, but out of an excess and abundance of caution, I, I canceled this. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at. And I, I think about masks um, and their their function and their representation um, every day. And uh, like um, Lakshmi was saying, uh, I I was sort of stockpiling when things started to calm down. I was I was hoping I didn't I didn't need to, um, but I was one of the persons that one of the people uh, of the uh, population that was more like I'm not really quite ready to let things go. Um, and just when I started to, uh, well, we we came on this delta trajectory, unfortunately. Yeah. Wow. So I want to I want to continue this a little bit. Lakshmi, let me turn to you. Last year in November of 2020, you wrote an essay with Anna Reichman titled Medical Humanities in a Pandemic, Essential and Critical. In that brilliant essay, you make two points, at least I think, um, that pandemic fiction can help us to understand the pandemic moment of COVID-19 and that the medical and the health humanities are activist pursuits that help us in real time. They're not just reflective bench sciences that we use after the fact. So speaking then, a year ago, you wrote this. Take the anticipated SARS-CoV-2 vaccine, the technical acumen and scientific skill required to produce, safely administer, and deliver it are substantial. Nonetheless, these efforts will be meaningless unless we enable its implementation and equitable distribution. Wow. Like that is such a prophetic essay. And that quote in particular, now a year later, looking at, at, at this piece and looking at how the rollout of vaccines um, has worked in the U.S., has worked globally, and now how we're now at this moment when, when, when adults in the U.S. that are unvaccinated can extremely easily walk up to a CVS and get vaccinated and are not doing that in large, large numbers in uh, across the U.S. And, and, and I wonder if you could reflect a little bit with us you know, you wrote that about a year ago. How have your how has your thinking on this changed, if 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 at all? Well, thank you so much for that thoughtful read, too, Jacob. I, I mean, I'm sure you can guess my thinking, my view on this has become even more febrile, if you will, <laughs> to keep extending our our contagious and infectious metaphors. But you know, obviously, on the on the issue of vaccine health equity we've seen the same systemic and structural issues that cause COVID to land disproportionately on particular communities replicated in, in the vaccine distribution. And in so many cases, unfortunately, um, not to keep beating this drum, but it's been due to a failure to incorporate exactly the expertise and perspectives that Anna and I mentioned in our piece, right? Ethicists, communication scholars, historians of medicine and public health, community stakeholders. And, and you alluded to this a little bit earlier, but I really think we fell into the national magic bullet trap, right? The awe and amazement at the speed of vaccine development and rollout, which to be clear was amazing. And I think the science is amazing that here we are despite the vaccine facing this petri dish of new variants and another surge because of that oversight. So I I, I wish that piece was not so relevant. Yeah. Um, and it's just the one other kind of affective thing I will say is that the the, the notion that we have been throwing out vaccine when in the global south the you know people are 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 just clamoring like just any any kind of vaccine um is just i don't know it's just egregious to me it's just egregious yeah yeah and 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 you know what's what what strikes me about that is this is something that you anticipated and and wrote publicly it's something that dozens and dozens of, of folks who have spent their entire careers and have have this as their field of study that they work on. Um, and 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 I don't want to beat like this drum that like we were right. We told you so because that isn't helpful. That will not help us out of this um, in, in any way, shape or form. But I do think it, it does underscore something that I think all of us in the medical humanities and the health humanities and in ethics in public health 
we do need to reckon with at some point. It, it, it probably isn't now because we're in the middle of a natural disaster still, but it, it probably is something at some point we will have to reckon with is this notion of where does our expertise go? And, 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 and how can we help? Because, I mean, I'm with you, uh, and I have been from the beginning. I think that the humanities and that, that the folks who study this have real-time expertise that can help us, like, right now, where we are sitting in, in this moment in the pandemic. They, we, we could have helped earlier, too, but, but we can help right now. And, and in, in, in large segments of, of governments, governance, and at, at local levels, all the way to, to federal and international levels, that 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 expertise is not sought, and and I don't I don't know how to solve that, frankly, um, and I and I don't know that anybody does, but I think it's something we have to reckon with um, at at some point. Lorenzo, let me ask you this though: I mean, you, your work in the in the health humanities is so powerful right now um, for what you've studied and its relevance. For me, um, looking at your work, what do you think the health humanities can do for us right now? Uh, thanks, Jacob. Uh, first, I would second everything that Lakshmi said, um, specifically um, about how we have this unequitable uh, vaccine distribution at, uh, globally, and yet in the U.S., we have you know incentives like $100 to get people to get vaccinated, and it, it's working, and that's great, and we're talking about boosters. But, you know, there's there's places um, around the world where people are literally dying to get a vaccine. And that's not the case here. And um, I definitely want to echo what you said, Lakshmi, in terms of a magic bullet, uh, because I think that's that's absolutely something that's kind of driving this. And I think that's something that um, historical and humanistic um, and uh, social scientific work can help us understand, because there's absolutely this desire for a techno fix that like can get it uh, get it get rid of it. Quickly And likewise, the developments and the success of the vaccine was extraordinary and amazing. But I think if we don't have an, a, a good understanding and appreciation for how uh, pharmacology, epidemiology, any kind of uh, technology uh, that we deploy um, gets implemented in the, in the context, then we really don't have a good understanding of how it's actually going to play out. And by context, I mean things like social and intellectual history, ethics, cultural practices, narratives, media form, rhetoric. Uh, I, I mean, I think we, we've seen time and time again that uh, expertise within um, specific uh, scientific or medical practices doesn't always translate to, for example, health and scientific communication. And yet there's there's people who specialize and have been doing work on this forever. Likewise with ethics, there's, you know, there, I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, there was all this talk around kind of lifeboat uh, ethics surrounding uh, triage and uh, ventilators, like, like nobody's talked about this or have researched it historically or philosophically for some time. Um, so I think we are there and we, we can help. Um, and I, I don't have a really good, a really good answer for, for how to do that. Um, but I can say that um at least being becoming a student again recently uh in a master's in public health program i i see that there is absolutely at least on the educational side um from all different kinds of uh providers and researchers um a desire to to understand um things that might traditionally not be taught or sought to be learned um within the more practical deployments of medicine yeah Yeah, that's great. Um, I, I completely agree. And, you know, Lakshmi, I want to bring you in here because and you and I have talked about this before, but, you know, we've seen some really big changes in medical education. Just to give one example of this in medical education and, and bringing in and folding in and integrating health humanities and medical humanities into medical education. And then that's been going on for a long time. And it's there's been a, you know, leading up to COVID there was a lot of momentum in a lot of places and a lot of medical schools for the kind of work that you do, frankly. Um, 
I wonder if you if you've reflected at all, and I, I haven't. This just came to mind from what Lorenzo was saying. Do you think COVID nineteen and the experience of COVID nineteen will lead to an even greater humanizing of the study of medicine and the practice of medicine? I sincerely hope so. I'm going to I'm going to cling to my somewhat idealistic self here, but also because of what I see with my students and my trainees. And Jacob, I think, I mean, they get it. We know this as educators. They get it intuitively. They understand that language structures epistemic um, practice. They understand metaphor. They, they're asking for this multidisciplinarity and interdisciplinarity sometimes without knowing how to articulate, like, oh, I'm looking for health humanities or I'm looking for history of medicine and public health. Um, and my hope is that we are seeing sort of student-driven grassroots change, at least, you know, at my institution, the medical curriculum is being overhauled toward principles of health equity, toward principles of racial justice. Um, and you can't think about those those transdisciplinary issues without folding in the humanities and social sciences. So it's been interesting to see the ways in which students are kind of organizing around this. Um, and of course, as faculty, we're, we're thrilled to support them. Um, and so I, I think that there is a sense in medicine, as I said, I do think it's, mo it's mostly grassroots, but still, I think there's a sense in medicine and, and just healthcare more broadly that we cannot we cannot go on as we have been. Um, I, and, you know, that incredible anecdote that you shared, the story you shared at the beginning um, points to also issues of things like burnout, um, resilience, wellness, you know, these aren't, that's not my space, but I do think that that has also been a sort of way in for a lot of healthcare providers to, to start thinking about these issues. Um, and, the intersecting pandemics of, of COVID, racism, chronic disease, you know, structural issues, socioeconomic issues, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to be optimistic about this too, that, that, you know, that the pandemic will create more discussions and force more discussions about, you know, these big structural problems that, that frankly, we need the humanities to address. Um, and, and, you know, and I think that, that frankly is, is quite tied to, this promise that has failed of the techno fix to solving COVID-19, right? I think it's, it's totally bound with, with that phenomenon that we're seeing. And at some point, there's going to be, I hope, um, and I hope it's, it's happening right now, a bunch of vaccinated adults in the U.S. that look around and they say, this, I was promised the vaccine would solve this, and it isn't, and it's getting worse. So what do we need to do? And I think a lot of people are, I, I, I've been really trying to pay attention to this question. Like, what are the vaccinated people like me in our communities, what, are, what is their sentiment right now? And, 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 it's, and you know, you know, I've seen a bunch of articles, like popular articles on this, right? Um, that they're mad. They're mad because they, they wanted the tech fix. Um, and, and I think like, that's something that we need the humanities to help us to understand. And and you you said it in your in your article last year, Lakshmi. You're like, we're gonna get the the the, the tech, the vaccine's gonna come, and it won't solve this problem, at least not in any immediate sense, right? Um, and and that's something that that I that I'm I'm waiting to see where those where that discourse goes in this country, around the world, but in but in this country in particular. Um, but I want to go back to something that you said, um, Lakshmi. Um, and, and, and ask Lorenzo about it, which is about students understanding metaphor. So Lorenzo, you're the expert here. You're literally one of the world's expert on this topic. So your book, Medicine is War, I think should be on everybody's pandemic reading list. And, and, and in so many ways, your book is a book of pandemic literature itself, you know, being published this year it is it is so interesting to think about the levels of meta-ness that that happen when you publish a book on a topic like yours in a pandemic. Um, but I want to talk to you about about the core argument about your of your book, about the emergence and the staying power of military metaphors that shape our cultural attitudes towards disease. Tell us a little bit more 
um, about where those military metaphors emerged in the 19th century and then why we keep coming back to them. Um, I think everybody's sort of familiar with this this metaphor and this language of the war on disease. Um, we also extend that metaphor to all sorts of other things, the war on drugs, the war on poverty, the war on et cetera, et cetera. This is something that you're an expert on. Tell us, tell us about those metaphors and why are they so important, particularly in a moment like this of, of, of living in a pandemic? Uh, thanks, Zane. I, I think like the color is changing on my Zoom thing because I'm so flattered by your um, descriptions. I, I really uh, appreciate you uh, thinking about my work in that way. Um, I can tell you that, you know, first of all, I'm not the first one by any means to study metaphor, metaphor and medicine. Or as you mentioned, the war against, um, I mean, Blackoff and Johnson have talked about that as being a, a, a argument is war and X, Y is war as a kind of conceptual metaphor that is so ingrained that we don't even think about it as a metaphor. Um, that's kind of what drove my interest with um, thinking about medicine as war, either at scale epidemiologically or individually fighting um, a disease or illness, or um, when you scale it all the way down immunologically and describing the immune system in that way. Um, what I've seen and what uh, I found that led to um, the argument of my book is the argument, the the sort of description, uh, description and the metaphor, you see it very early. You can see it as early as the 16th century. You can see it in Hippocrates and um, Galen, although that is translated into English, and a lot of those were in the 19th were translated in the 19th century. Um, but the point at which I saw it really emerge in Western culture, um, specifically British, um, is around the early 19th century, and. The point, the kind of point in space of inflection was specifically military medicine. You see all these articles and monographs um, by physicians and surgeons that are part of military detachments and are talking about fighting these simultaneous battles with uh, cholera and then an enemy on the other hand. And that's like filled with their prose. And then you, at, at, in around the 1830s, a lot of this is, is, is um, emerging around cholera and um, it's really intimately tied with actual military deployments and colonial efforts. Um, and then around the mid-century, I see it kind of extending and expanding into the um, popular imagination. And you start to see it more in periodical prose, professional, medical, or otherwise. You start to see it in legislation, in speeches. And I see um, that fiction and novels specifically play a, a role in at once circulating that metaphor, extending this idea of battle literally, and then making it figurative to talk about uh, disease. And often just by the nature of the way fiction works, it lends itself to kind of critiquing the thing that it's doing. Um, so that's why I think literature was an important space to look for in terms of um, seeing how it plays a role critiqued and gives us a, a space to um, reflect on. Um, why we continue to go, go back on it, um, I, I think there's a number of reasons. I mean, it really got hardened um, and re-sort of entrenched in the age of uh, immunology in the late 19th century, uh, certainly as, as you discussed in the rise of epidemiology as a profession in the late 19th century with the development of uh, germ theory and then in the early 20th century with uh, sulfa drugs and we get therapeutics like antibiotics we get antibiosis as a logic to kind of move forward in our relationship with um, uh, infectious disease. And it certainly gets naturalized and then hardened um, through the, um, the Cold War. And, and then it just kind of like becomes part of our lexicon. Um, it was so fascinating and strange um, to see it again pop up with the pandemic because I saw almost immediately within weeks, uh, um, periodicals and really good thing pieces in the Atlantic um, and op-eds that were starting to notice it. Um, and at once I was like, wow, like I've been looking at this for a while. And um, uh, and so like there was like a moment of like jealousy, but then at the same time, I was really excited that it was gaining traction. Um, and I think a similar conclusions that I came to in terms of how it lends itself to uh, blaming and othering xenophobia, um, this sort of zero-sum logic of us versus them um, is kind of what this fabulation sort of affords. And at the same time, um, this kind of logic of collateral damage where 
you know, you can say things like this disease only harms the elderly or the immunocompromised. And this becomes an acceptable sacrifice. And we say things like, thank you for your sacrifice to the to the health workers um, or to the um, essential workers. I mean, the all the, the, the realities and material um, lived experiences of the pandemic that get can get glossed over just as they can with statistics. They can get glossed over um, with language and metaphor. Um, and it's it, and I think it really um, behooves us to think about, um, you know, are we willing to just let it kill communities? Um, is death the only thing we're really fighting? Are healthcare workers the only ones that are really sacrificing? And I think when we sort of look, go and unpack where the metaphor comes from, what kind of connotative and historical baggage it carries with it, and what kind of work it does in the present, we can maybe take a moment to potentially think differently. And um, I, I'm not necessarily, um, I don't think it's bad per se. I think, of course, everyone's entitled to their own metaphors and how they want to describe their relationship um, mm -hmm. with disease. But at the same time, I think when people in positions of influence and power, um, you know, like presidents um, or politicians and leading experts, uh, and likewise, I think with physicians um, that are in a, in, in a position of power relative to um, health could take a moment to understand and think a little bit metacritically about the language that they're using, not just specifically uh, medicine is war, and that's just the one I talk about, but I'm hoping that at least that example can lead to more expansive thinking about other potentially uh, problematic or more helpful ways of framing. Wow. You need to write an Atlantic article of your own that literally is what you just said, because yeah. it's it's absolutely spot on. I'll leave that to <laughs> Um, so I, um, yeah, there's, there's so much like that, the, that language to me is so interesting. I've been, I've been trying to pay attention to that a lot. You know, a lot of the stuff that I've been interested in the last few years in my own work is on how, how epidemiological knowledge, like how knowledge about the spread of the, any disease gets communicated. How do we in, in popular discourse go from here is how COVID-19 spreads and then how does that trickle down to how everyday people understand it? And one of the things that I've noticed um, observationally in, so far in the pandemic is that, is that the epidemiology has been amazing. Like I, 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 I read so much epidemiology every week that it's probably a little scary um, to my partner who sees me reading all this epidemiology and these models. And like, I'm really fascinated about it. I mean, I think the epidemiologists like, deserve an incredible amount of credit for understanding a lot of variables about this disease, right? But at the same time, I've seen a complete dearth out in public and in our public discourse for the communication of that knowledge. And, and, and I think there are like really deep historical reasons why that happened. There is, you know, at, at multiple levels, there's a splintering between like where people do epidemiology and where it gets funded and then how those those reports and those findings get communicated. Often they just end up in academic journals. They don't end up in the hands of people actually making public decisions or in the hands of people who have the power to put out public health messaging. Um, I mean, we have deep structural problems happening right now in this country with public health and epidemiology. But I wonder, like, I haven't thought enough about it, and your book has made me think so much about it, Lorenzo, like that public health messaging and that, that disjunct between where the epidemiology is on COVID and where our communication is on COVID of how important language and metaphor is to that communication. I mean, I'm, I'm frankly just shocked that I don't walk around my town and see handbills about COVID and posters about masks, nothing. There's nothing. Where do you think, so either one of you, like, are you seeing something different in your communities? I mean, Lakshmi, you're in a you're in a hospital all the time. You probably see very different messaging. You know, surprisingly, not really. Damn. Yeah, it's and again, I'm in you know I'm in the Golden District of Columbia. Like we're doing well um, in as far as the U.S. response. It's been pretty exemplary in D.C. But 
you know, what I actually was going to say, gosh, I, I also had so many thoughts after hearing um, what Lorenzo said. And I just want to give a shout out. Actually, Lorenzo's work on metaphor has been hugely important for me. So I'm just thankful um, because I, you know, I think about the metaphor of investigation and how that is a deeply problematic metaphor as well. And so, you know, your work, Lorenzo, has just been yeah hugely important, hugely influential. Anyway, um, one thing that kept ringing in my head as you were talking, Lorenzo, and then Jacob with your follow-up question was um, actually a formulation by Anjali Raza Cole in her book, Epidemic Empire, right? Thinking about narratives of terror and, and, and Islamophobia and sort of this, you know, starting in that early 19th century context in military medicine, that it's also metaphors we die by in an inversion of that, right? That canonical Lakoff and Johnson uh, formulation. And that's all to say that I, I, I think that the, the gap in public health communication is actually failing to use useful metaphors, which Jacob, you were just pointing out, like, like you think about like Dora Varga describing vaccines as technologies of trust. That's hugely helpful. Yeah. Um, but we don't, we don't use that. We don't use the, you know, the, the, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll dichotomize it and say the more positive metaphors of, um, you know, being in this together or kind of an ecological response or, or whatever it is. So coming back um, more directly to your question, Jacob, what I have noticed has just been this sort of void and absence of a channel between the clinical reality and public health communication. And unfortunately, again, as as historians, we know we have seen that we have seen that play out. Um, like in, in, in some work that I did early in the pandemic on 1918 influenza, it was so interesting to me to see these sort of entrepreneurial or politicized figures like, you know, like J.D. Robertson in Chicago, the public, uh, the public health commissioner who really had very little imprimatur in the clinical community, had no business yeah. <laughs> you know, dictating public health communication, but, but was, was doing it in this almost like what's now uh, you know, kind of the, the Trumpian cadre or what we've seen with Modi in India. Like, so yeah. um, anyway, that it's just, it, it just seems like these realities, these worlds, these spaces are not intersecting or not conjoined, even though they should be. Um, so it's deeply, deeply frustrating. Well, I wonder too, like this, this, this aspect of health communication that we're talking about and the language that we use and how we employ that language for sometimes political ends um, in, 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 in real life public health situations. I've also been thinking a lot and it makes me, it makes me reflect on this in, in real time here about what I'm seeing across much of the U.S. South where I live in terms of like, activism around the pandemic. And there's so many amazing examples that, that historians have looked at from past pandemics and epidemics where community activism makes an enormous amount of difference in, 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 in creating public health good and saving lives, like grassroots public health organizing. I mean, we saw like HIV, the stories from HIV, AIDS, activism, the ACT UP movement, like there's a lot of really incredible scholarship on that. Um, but we're in the middle of this COVID-19 pandemic and, and I'm looking around and I'm not seeing any of that activism. It may be there and, and I don't see it, but I'm looking really hard. Where I do see activism, and I wonder if we can reflect on this for a minute, where I do see activism is I see news reports and I see people on Twitter sharing videos and it's outraged parents going to school board meetings because their schools put in a mask mandate and they are organizing, they are being loud, and they're using tools of communication and rhetoric to make themselves heard. They're, they're being activists. And, 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 and also that activism is harming our communities and, and, and leading to the spread of this disease. Um, where is the, the positive messaging right now and the positive activism? Where is it? Uh, <laughs> exactly. I'm just on me. I'm on mute. <laughs> I'm at yeah. a loss. That's just it. Like we, we, the three of us are people that have spent our whole careers studying medicine, public health. Lakshmi, you work, you work in it too. And, and like, 
when we look around this landscape right now in in America and we see low rates of taking up vaccines, we see divisive issues around masks and 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 I'm I'm just waiting um for 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 people to come together and 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 be activists and organize. Sometimes um you know I'm seeing we're seeing it all across the US South where governors are putting mandates in place that say that local communities can't put in place vaccine or mask mandates, which is this like, that's, I'm pretty sure as a historian of public health, that's not going to age well. Like when we come back to write that story and we see COVID raging in those same areas. But what I am seeing right now, and, and, and both of you know this too, is defiance by local mayors in Louisiana, in Texas, in Florida. And they're just saying, no, they're just saying, take my salary, threaten me, do whatever you got to do because I'm going to stand up and I'm going to put in safe, scientifically backed public health measures. That's, that's leadership. That that's, you know, that's courage. And, and I think we're at this moment right now where like a lot of people, I think all of us in some ways, deeply in some ways, every single one of us right now, we're, we're getting at a stage in the pandemic where we're all going to have to make those decisions of, of where do you stand? And what kind of decisions are you going to make as an individual? I mean, Lorenzo, it's exactly what you talked about, about dropping out of this race that you trained for. You're, you're making that choice. And it's a choice based on ethical, moral decisions of where you think you are in the pandemic. And I think we're at this stage now where all of us, we're all going to be starting to make those decisions. And those are existential decisions at some level too, right? Lakshmi, yeah. yeah, go ahead, Lorenzo. Sorry, I was just thinking as you were talking. Um, I, I really appreciate Lakshmi your reference to um that discussion of back thinking of vaccines as trust. Um, because specifically with technologies, we have this this go to notion of of if we're going to um figure we're we're going to do it mechanistically and not have these uh, other kinds of potentially relational, potentially um positive. Um, kinds of um, heuristics. And when it comes to um, uh, thinking about um, some of these other sentiments uh, in terms of, uh, you know, these parents, uh, you know, materially and rhetorically, um, you know, actively harming um, at school board meetings uh, and, and, and seeing where that's happening on the other side, uh, on like the other side, it's hard. It, it, it's really hard. Um, to know what to do and where to take a stand. And um, I, I see this a lot, for instance, on, on Twitter. I've seen so many uh, uh, women scientists, epidemiologists, virologists, immunologists um, sort of just kind of take the cause up and started talking about um, the different aspects of the science as it was emerging and sort of just like explode and at the same time take on a lot of harm um, in terms of direct messaging and harassment, um, you know, that expense at the cost of, of you know, changing a, a few people's minds or getting the message out there. I mean, honestly, uh, from my perspective, I've, I've, I've been in kind of an echo chamber, um, you know, digitally, um, you know, as, as, a, as a researcher, um, as a student in my epidemiology classes that I'm taking. Um, and when I'm sort of looking online, um, I, I follow particularly uh, certain groups of people, and I see the the sort of responses that they get positive and and um, negatively. But um, I talking to you earlier, and now I, I'm thinking about maybe expanding the the scope of of where I look to get information, and not just looking at it, looking at it for the right information. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I just think things are changing really fast, and and this is what you know. As someone who studied pandemics all of my career, it every single one of them aren't bound in these like really easy chronological geographical ways. They're just not. And and we want them to be. We want to find an origin. We want to find a start date. Students love this too, right? In, in, in teaching about a p pandemics and teaching about disease. We want a start date. We want an end date. We want a crescendo. We want, you know, we want like that Charles Rosenberg dramaturgy. We want it to be a play. But it's not. It's it's just frankly not. I mean, COVID nineteen is is, is proof that 
Um, we didn't need COVID-19 to prove that because we could have looked at any of the other intractable diseases, um, right? We could we could look at how cholera was this disease that that Westerners said they conquered by the early 20th century, and it's still a leading cause of death in the global south. It's not conquered, right? We people in the West just don't care about it anymore. But 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 and so I, I you know I, I think we're 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 treading in some water right now that is 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 going to force us like you said Lorenzo to to maybe think differently and and I don't know what we're all going to do um to to navigate those waters but Lakshmi like I want to ask you though from your own personal experience in the last 18 months like how are you doing it like how do you manage being a clinician and manage being a a, a humanist like how, how do you do it I, you're the only person that I know who lives that life. And I think I've thought about you so many times during the pandemic. And I was just like, I'm just thinking of sending like thoughts out for you. And like, how, how are you managing? And like, how do you deal with like the epistemological, like meta psychological? I know how to reflect on this. I have the tools of the humanities to think through this. But I'm also like in a clinic dealing with patients. And like, I have a reality that's a practical reality too. Well, that is so kind, Jacob. Thank you. Um, I I actually, well, so there's there's you know there's anxiety. There's this existential like terror. I mean, for lack of a better word, especially in the early days of COVID, and now we're getting back to that feeling. But I do actually find it hugely generative um, because because of that sort of echo chamber that Lorenzo was talking about. I mean, I I, I think that. Um, pop oscillating between these worlds helps me to just consolidate what I already know, which is that our work on the, you know, on the critical and the scholarly side has real impact, but it's also helpful because you come across disc like discursive stuff, metaphors, language, that's so different from what we're trading in. Um, you know, so, so for example, something that I've been thinking about a lot and actually had a conversation with Lorenzo about this was the term person under investigation, PUI, which I came across first, honestly, in the clinical context, uh, when we started opening COVID PUI wards. And of course, as you, as you both know, I work on investigation and I was sort of just so struck by that term. Um, and so, you know, sort of selfish academic sense, um, the the things that we see and do on the clinical side, I think are are really, they just, they inform my work, they inform the urgency. Um, and, and yeah, yeah, I, I'll just, I'll leave it there. Um, it's, it's, it's hard, but I'm, you know, I'm grateful to be able to be a citizen of both these domains. Um, and there's meaning, you know, there's meaning making, right, in, in taking care of, of patients and being with families and, and all of that. Um, so, so, so yeah. But one thing I do want to just, I'll, I'll, I'll stop here. But one thing I do want to say um, that I found really like moving, actually, Jacob, was what you just said about this being an ethical moment. Um, I mean, I think that's, that pandemics, right? We, we keep struggling for metaphors to describe them, but really they're, they're ethical crucibles. And this is where the humanities, though they can't teach us how to be good or moral beings, um, can help us think through the nuances of, of, of this, you know, this, this sort of unprecedented moment for us, obviously not historically unprecedented, but unprecedented for, you know, for each of us as individuals. So I, um, I want to share something else for everyone. Um, something that you said, Lakshmi. So, so last January, I was teaching a medical humanities class, an intro class, and I, I, I did as much um, teaching that class online as I could to bring in a bunch of voices from scholars from all around the world to try to help my students to understand what this field is. And, and you were gracious enough to come on and, and speak with us, and we read some of your work. And I, I, it was one of the most memorable moments of 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 the last year for me when you said this i asked you you might remember um what what maybe made your practice different from from being a humanist from studying the the medical and the health humanities and you paused for a minute and you said i spend more time with patients than my colleagues and 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 like that's something that really is stuck with me um 
And, 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 you know, we're at this moment in the pandemic where things are maybe more, more divisive than they ever have been in, in the pandemic. And I'm, I, I'm afraid that they're going to get worse. And I think like what, what you, that sentiment that you expressed of just like kindness basically is like so important. You don't need a medical health humanities background to be kind to people. Um, but I do think that like your training and, and this, this set of framework and tools of the medical and the health humanities does lend itself, not just for clinicians, but for patients and for everyday people um, who all of us are, all of us are patients, right? Um, it, it lends itself to a kind of empathy that can create kindness. And, and I'm, I'm really, I'm really trying to find that now. That's like my, like my, my new like torch to carry around as I walk through this world is like, how are we going to solve this pandemic? It in some ways is going to be through kindness. Um, so thank you so much for your work. Just thank you. Thank you. I'm so moved. Thank you. Okay, Lorenzo, let me, um, in the few, um, let me, let's go a little bit longer because I want to ask Lorenzo something that I, I, I'm, I'm, I really need to ask him and I want to talk about. So in your book, um, it includes an addendum at the end, a surge of epilog, epilogics in the midst of the war against COVID-19. It's, a, it's an epilogue about COVID-19. It's so beautiful. And, and it's harrowing, and I want to tell you it's brave. And I'm, I'm, I'm so incredibly proud that you did that. I want to hear like maybe why you did that, but let me, let, me, let me share with everyone a second. You write to start that epilogue out. It's August 5th, 2020. I've been told over the course of the past few months, the first wave of COVID-19, that my book is especially timely. This addendum is an expression of the complicated feelings, events, and entanglements that, for whatever it's worth, might validate that statement. What follows is a record gleaned from diary entries, social media posts, emails, and text messages during the period between the publisher's approval of the manuscript for production and the final moments of copy editing. How these fragments have been placed in sequence will be made manifest in the reading of them. Tell us about that process, and then tell us now um, you know, you've had some time to reflect for when you put that together. Um, you know, that was a, a year since you dated that almost to the date. How, have you reflected on, on that at all? Have you reflected on like your own way in which your book is now a book of COVID? It's a COVID book. Like you're a person who studies literature and medicine and like your book is a, your, your book is now that, I mean that. So Tell us about the weight of how you experienced that and, and are dealing with it. And, and tell us about this epilogue that, that you produced. Um, well, first, thanks. That's I, I'm gushing again. <laughs> um, that's like the nicest compliment I, I think I, I, I recall getting. Um, but first, before I jump to that, I just want to uh, speak to Lakshmi, um, your sort of uh, quotient for uh, health humanities about more time with patients. I mean, that's a hard outcome. That's a hard continuous variable that we can measure. And, you know, we don't have to like qualify in complicated things that aren't translatable. So I, I just, that was very moving to me. Um, in terms of the epilogue, um, I should say that's um, the language um, particularly made manifest in the order of reading them. I mean, that that's really gleaned from the preface of Dracula. Um, and that's the whole shape of that epilogue um, is sort of, mimicking the form of Dracula, um, but kind of in the form of like self-reflective diary entries or slash or tweets. Um, I guess at that moment, for me, I'd been struggling so hard. And um, I don't know if Lakshmi, you experienced this or Jacob, I, where working in, in more than one field, I'd been struggling to get sort of like the disciplinary rigor right, gets the history right, um, get the epidemiology and the science I cited right. And so I'd been, you know, working to this like, you know, veneer of, of objectivity and sort of detached, um, like here's the transparency of, of my argument and my evidence and, and look at it. Um, and while I knew that this, you know, idea of objectivity is like a historical construction and a disciplinary imperative, um, you know, I, I just really saw myself detaching from that 
And then at that moment, I, I didn't know how to feel about the pandemic. I was teaching Dracula. <laughs> I was finishing my book. Um, I, my, uh, my uh, university had just uh, put everything online on the syllabus. The movie Contagion was there for when we got back that I had been teaching for four years. And I just, I, at the same time, I, I got diagnosed with an illness with uh, iron deficiency anemia. Um, and it, it was, it was a lot to deal with. And, um, I, I, I needed some way I felt that to document and sort of mark the record of that, that was attached to the, um, you know, ostensibly, um, you know, research product, um, that um, I was just had, I, I was, you know, more detached from in terms of an author. It was so strange because the more I started working in um, away from the straight humanistic side and started training in, um, you know, epidemiology and public health. Um, and the more I started moving toward um, history of medicine rather than literature, I, I started to, to det detach some. Um, so it was a way of kind of reintegrating myself in just this wave of of uh, narratives and feelings and material circumstances that I didn't know how to make sense of. And it's exactly what you said that like the, you know, the dramaturgy of it, the narrative, you know, that this idea of tracing back to an index case or this like, you know, like a lab leak, like we want this easy fit cause and effect. And it's not, it's like this really complicated ecology that, you know, isn't easy to untangle. And for me, that was the way to express how I was navigating that personally, professionally, and um, I guess intellectually. Wow! Thank you so much for sharing that. I um, we could we could keep running this for hours and hours and 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 not sleep tonight and keep going. But I, I want to be respectful of both of your time and and acknowledge both of your labor and and coming on this program and exploring these issues in such a rich and powerful way. And, and, and for all the work that you both do, because it's, it's so important. It's, it's real work that's important. Um, so thank you so much, Lorenzo Lakshmi, for joining me on COVID Calls today. Please, everyone, check them out, follow them, read their work. It's amazing. Thank you both so much.